Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, and welcome to The Tonight Show. I'm John Lee. Tonight, Justice Minister Simon Harris joins us on our panel to debate drug laws and keeping the Gardaí safe. Also coming up, the fire crisis at Wexford Hospital and more drone disruption at Dublin Airport. You can join our conversation online with your comments and questions on hashtag tonight BMTV. Good evening. I'm John Lee from the Irish Daily Mail. I'm joined here on my panel tonight by the Justice Minister Simon Harris, Sinn Féin TD Louise O'Reilly, Irish Mirror political correspondent Louise Byrne, and pharmacist and former TD Kate O'Connell. Minister Harris, thank you for joining us tonight. There's been another drone disruption, um, according to Michael O'Leary, at the 6th Dublin airport in uh, the last year. How is it possible for such a small implement to hold up our whole air service in Dublin Airport? And what's been done about it? Well, we clearly need to have a coordinated approach to this. Um, This is causing massive, massive frustration, I know, for so many people, uh, including the travelling public. I know there's a number of suggestions that have uh, been articulated by the airport authority as to what should happen. I should say, as Justice Minister, there are already laws in place and indeed there are a number of investigations underway and I obviously can't comment on ongoing investigations. And there are already criminal offences in this area. However, there is a need for a real joined-up approach here. And I know my colleague, the Minister for Transport, working with the Irish Aviation Authority, is engaging with officials in my own department, uh, the Department of Defence and others, to bring forward proposals. And I accept there's a real urgency in relation to this. Uh, there is software available, isn't there, to to deal with these um, drones? Have, has the government here looked at that? I mean, my, six shutdowns is a big deal. Yeah, that's my under, my understanding. Is there's a number of um, solutions or potential solutions? I'm not suggesting to be a technical expert. Um, software that can actually shut down drones is one. Uh, longer sentences and harsher criminal sanctions um, is, cer- is certainly another. Um, and takedown mechanisms is potentially a third as well. The Irish Aviation Authority is working with the Gardaí and with the Defence Forces. But I do have to say this because I think sometimes people think nothing happens in relation to these scenarios. I do need to be very oh, clear that there have actually been arrests, that there have actually been and are ongoing criminal investigations and people will be and are being prosecuted in relation to this. But if you're asking me honestly, do we need to do more and do we need to go further? Yes, we do. Louise O'Reilly, your constituency um, takes in Dublin Airport. You know, what is, what is the reaction there of workers besides the disruption, I think, to their, to their daily lives? It's, um, it's a massive inconvenience for business people and 
tourists. Yeah, oh no, it's 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 huge. Um, as we know, uh, Dublin Airport is by, by far and away the biggest airport on this island. Its services, I think, it's about ninety percent or ninety-two percent of all air traffic. It is absolutely essential that the airport can function. Uh, and it's really frustrating for people who work in the airport. It is incredibly frustrating because remember, every time the the somebody disrupts the uh, activities in Dublin Airport, following on from that, you have naturally people who are incredible passengers who are incredibly irate. They're upset. They're frustrated. The staff are likewise. And you know the idea that, as you said yourself, something so small can cause so much disruption. And I suppose questions are asked about what exactly is being done. And the minister is right. There have been uh, some criminal prosecutions and, and that's very welcome. But I think all we need to look at, rather than following up, we need to look at getting ahead of it. Mm. So that involves, one, the, the, the technology, absolutely, the, the software uh, to prevent the, dro the, the drones from being able to fly close to the airport. My understanding is some of that is used, but maybe it's not effective. It needs to be updated. But we also need to look at what could be done perhaps at the point of sale. So it, it might, again, I'm no expert on this, but my understanding is each drone has a, a unique um, identifier on it so that I get like a pin number or whatever on it. So, so you'd follow, for them, those, like, follow, yeah, the, follow the yeah, owner. That, that you have to properly register it, you know, and that, that you have to be... And like a lot of people fly drones. It wouldn't be my thing now, but a lot of people fly drones. They, they, think, they think it's great crack and they do it in a really, really safe and careful manner. You often see people out around Rush um, and scaries, myself and Balbriggan, people flying drones, taking lovely pictures, all of that kind of stuff is grand. But these people who are doing it near the airport, they, I, I believe they know what they are doing. Like, there are signs yeah, yeah. up around the airport. It is tough to be able to fly a drone near the airport. If you try to get too close to the airport, you'll, you'll get a signal telling you that. So I think what needs to be done is rather than the, the criminal sanctions and, and, and the justice response, which is important, to get ahead of it, to, to okay. stop the drones either getting into the hands of these people in the first place to ensure when they do have them that they're completely traceable and that the technology, whatever technology is available to prevent them coming near the airport is done. But there's, uh, it has to be said, it is incredibly frustrating for the passengers, for the workers in the airport and for anyone who's contemplating flying out of Dublin Airport this summer. People are, you know, getting to the stage now where if they're lucky enough to be going on a summer holiday, they're maybe thinking, uh, you know, Dublin Airport, uh, you know, am I going to be yeah. able to rely on it? And, you know, let's be honest, Dublin Airport doesn't need any more bad publicity after last summer. They actually need to be able to just get the passengers in, get them onto the planes, get them off. And this, anything that disrupts it, um, I very, very rarely will you find me in agreement with Michael O'Leary, but I agree with him on this. These things have to be grounded because they're grounding the planes. So they absolutely do need okay. to be grounded. Okay. Um, Minister Harris, we have another um, breaking story tonight. And I know it's, it's, it's kind of across government responsibility for refugees. It's not necessarily wholly within your remit. But um, there is some story I think that I saw in the Irish Times uh, website that government is considering new measures for refugees, certainly funding uh, for Ukrainian people fleeing the war, which is hotting up in, um, in Ukraine once again. Can you tell us, is that possible? We're not asking you to do anything that's not out there in the sure. public so look, sphere I, already. I, I, read, I read on my way in the, the, indeed the speculation that is, is emerging in the newspapers tonight. But what I can certainly say is this. Um, the government has been working very intensively, led by uh, Minister Roderick O'Gorman, in terms of trying to find and explore every possible avenue to help people in the midst of this massive humanitarian crisis. Uh, and I've been very clear before in relation to both the departments I currently have responsibility for, be it the Thornton Hall site within the 
the Department of Justice, be it student accommodation that's available during the summer period from the Department of Further and Higher Education. There's a responsibility on everybody uh, across the public sector, all agencies, all departments to step up and do everything we can. And we had a cabinet committee last week where we further considered this matter. Uh, my understanding is government will uh, consider more proposals tomorrow uh, and how best to support the rollout of those proposals. When you say Thornton Hall, I'm familiar with it, and Louise O'Reilly will be as well. It's, um, it's in North County, Dublin. Um, I'm not quite sure of the state of the buildings there, but are we looking at a mass accommodation solution? You know, we, we've, we've, we've problems around the country when it comes to um, hotels, but they're small numbers. Uh, you know, there has been talk in government uh, and the wider uh, public about... Uh, they're now called, called, they used to be called prefabs in my day. Um, is, that, is, that, is that being looked at? I mean, mass solutions to accommodation of a mass of people. So it's become very apparent during this crisis, not just here, but across the European Union, is there isn't going to be any one solution um, that can adequately deal with the scale of the challenge that we're facing um, as a result of the war in Ukraine and, and all the effects from that. So, I mean, government will continue to do things like encouraging people to provide a spare room, a spare property. There's about 66 projects underway in relation to local authorities doing up kind of old buildings or refurbishing buildings and communities. So everything and anything has to be used. But if you're asking me, if you're asking me as straight, do we need to look at larger sites that might yeah. be made available within the public uh, sphere and the ability to put accommodation on those sites? Yes, I think we do. We don't want to get ahead of any decision government might make tomorrow. But we have to come at this from all angles. Um, and that's what we're doing. We have an absolute moral obligation to provide shelter for people in this country who are fleeing persecution. There's lots of elements to the migration system, some in the Department of Justice's responsibility about a rules-based system being robustly uh, implemented. But fundamentally here, there's people fleeing from a war and there's people fleeing from persecution, and we have to make sure we can provide shelter. And uh, like I say, it would be inexcusable to not come at this from all angles and from every way possible, and government will consider it further tomorrow. Kate O'Connell, you're a former TD, um, government TD as well. Is this, is this um, a bullet that needs to be bit by the government to provide a proper, quick, um, mass accommodation for for fleeing refugees, to ask them to come here and possibly face now we see protests at hotels. And it's still not tackling the fact that we could have up to 100,000 people fleeing here from, from, um, from the Ukraine. What is the opposition to that? Is it the PR, PR effect of putting people in, in, in mobile homes or in porta cabins or in tents? God forbid. Well, I think to start, I mean, we're looking at a year in, and many parties the last time there was an election campaigned um, on getting rid of um, direct provision as though anybody ever wanted it in the first place. And when you talk about sites like Thornton Hall, um, they do sound a little bit like direct provision. Um, as the minister said, they're not ideal, but we have to put it together with, you know, modular homes that are supposed to be coming on stream. Um, I know there was some barracks um, accommodation that was going to be upgraded. So there's no point in having objections to everything when we have to find solutions for what's in front of us now. Um, to my mind, and I employ a number of people from Ukraine and I have involvement with the community to some extent, um, the majority of people I've dealt with are women who have children or have older children, maybe not small children. They're, they're, they're battling for accommodation, uh, but also to get into a system that's really difficult for them to navigate. 
because there's a huge, and this is just my experience, I'm not an expert in this area, there's a huge language barrier. Uh, many of us might have a few words of French or Spanish from school, but there's a huge gap there in terms of the alphabet even, and the way they're, the etymology of their language. Yeah. Um, there's huge gaps in terms of equivalence with um, university qualifications and how they would adapt. That said, none of this is impossible, but instead of putting barriers up and maybe, you know, why are they getting whatever, I was, I was discussing it um, informally with somebody recently. And, you know, for many children in this country whose parents didn't go to university, we were educated with the taxpayer money of other people. And therefore, as one of those people, I see it as my duty to, as of someone who has a good job and is working, um, to try and provide, and I'm sure many people in Ireland. But like that, when you're not familiar with something, it's easy to be afraid of it. Um, there are distinct cultural differences, not necessarily bad things, just differences. Um, but I do think that it is unhelpful to be putting barriers in places. Um, I think we do have a moral obligation to look after people, and especially young children that could end up in vulnerable situations. I don't think any Irish person wants young children living in tents, living in congregated settings where their, um, their, their protections are at risk. Um, and I don't think we want to push anybody into the ground when they're already on it already. Louise Byrne, are, are, are there any cracks in the coalition on the pressure that's coming upon them from this seeming, seeming failure to deal with the, the refugee crisis, as in we're having difficulties housing our own population? Um, are, are the parties holding together on this, the three? Yeah, I mean, I mean, it seems that the government are kind of constantly chasing their tail on this a little bit. And what's really interesting is if you, say, talk to people in the Green Camp, they're saying it doesn't feel like Roderick O'Gorman, the integration minister, is getting enough support. How many times has he put out this call for vacant accommodation and none of the ministers have really come back with anything substantial? Um, if you look at Minister Harris's party in Fine Gael, there seems to be some, there's been some sort of objection with in some cohorts about the number of people coming in, where you're placing these people, um, reports anyway, Minister Harris. But I think the main thing is that Roderick O'Gorman wants to feel supported. And what was said to me recently is when he sent out that letter basically begging ministers for accommodation, is that how many times has he asked for this and he's not necessarily getting anything back? Well, I think back. as a nation, we've been pretty much at one on, on the refugees, th thankfully. Uh, Minister Harris, you have said some very... You've, you've not been... You've caused a bit of a whirlwind at the Department of Justice since you've been in there and now you've got two departments. You said some very striking things about um, recreational drug use in Ireland um, not so long ago in the in the in the Dáil. Um, could you remind us of what your stance was on that and its connection to um, yeah. gang crime? So look I, I was kind of actually surprised that it was seen as any sort of kind of radical or or significant intervention. I was being asked a question by Deputy Brendan Smith about the fact that drug use is rampant in many communities, not just big cities, not just big towns, actually villages right across this country, urban and rural, there's a real issue with drug use. And as Minister for Justice, I felt duty bound to state what I think is the blinding obvious, but needs to be stated, which is, I think people know that I believe in a health-led uh, approach for, for people suffering from addiction. I have pretty good credentials in this, I hope, from my time in the Department of Health. I believe in helping people who suffer from addiction and helping them overcome it. They don't need a criminal justice response. The point I was making was, though, there's a very big difference between that and somebody who might go out on a Friday night or a Saturday night down to the local pub, down to the local night, or wherever, and along with their pint or their spirit or whatever they're having to drink, a snort a, a, snort a line or pop a pill. 
And then that very same person a couple of days later might see something awful happen in another community as a result of drug intimidation, say, God, that's terrible, that's happening there. What are the guards doing about that? There is a direct link between the actions of people who are taking drugs in those casual settings, that social drug use, and funding and fueling criminality. Now, there's a whole big debate to have around drug law in Ireland. That's where we're going to have a citizens' assembly. But right now, the law is clear. And it is important, even if it makes people feel uncomfortable, that we actually re-establish this linkage, this direct correlation between your actions in purchasing that line of coke or whatever else, and the actual criminality, intimidation and misery we see in communities. That's all I was trying to say. And I hope it's helped contribute to a debate. But I think the citizens' assembly is the substantive forum in which now to tease through all the issues. And Louise Riley, is there full coherence coming from government in their message, messaging on drugs? Um, and Simon Harris has been very clear in, clear in his stance, but he has said that um, casual drug users should be held responsible or considered responsible for their contribution to the drug crisis. Yes, other sections of government are saying we should look at decriminalisation of drugs, and I do understand that they are, they are aimed at people who are suffering, benighted people suffering from addiction. But to me, casual use of drugs means you're carrying a small amount of drugs. How would, could it work that drugs be de decriminalised in small amounts? And is there full coherence coming from government on, on the messaging on drug taking? Well, I think, you know, and, and the minister says, you know, about their commitment to a health-led approach, which is good, and those words are very good. But if they were backed up with, you know, real funding and real community addiction support services, that would be even better. So what we don't have is we don't have a properly funded addiction service. And, and that, that's a problem. That's an issue. You know, yeah. there, there were treatment centres that were closed down, overnight facilities that were closed down that haven't reopened long-stay facilities and, and short-term facilities for, for people who are struggling with addiction. And I do think we need to make that distinction between people who are struggling with addiction and they need supports. They mm. need, absolutely need, a health-led approach. But when it comes to the, the conversation that we need to have, I think the Citizens' Assembly, I'm, I'm going to be straight with you, I was not a massive fan of citizens' assemblies, but I have seen them. I had occasion to go and see the one on the Eighth Amendment in, in, the, in the Grand Hotel in Malahide. I went down, I had a look and I saw how they work and I, I was absolutely blown away by how inclusive the, the process was and how everybody had their views and consensus was, was, arrived, was, was arrived at through dialogue and through discussion and also using the, the very lived experience of the people who were there. But I think also we have a huge problem, particularly in working class communities, with intimidation for drug debts. There are families who are being absolutely creased this evening. They are absolutely terrified. It could be start off as a small amount of money. It ends up with interest and everything else that these people put on it. It ends up as being maybe not a huge amount of money, but a very big amount of money to that family. Mm -hmm. And they have people coming around to their house. They are living in fear. And that is absolutely unacceptable. So there does need to be a criminal justice response to, the, to that, to those Just people, to support those people. Thank you. Um, um, Kate, you, you're in a different part of Dublin, I guess, um, from where you'd associate with the blight of, of, of drug crime. But in South, in South Dublin... Um, is cocaine use as, as, as prevalent as some would say? Well, um, I am not involved in a social circle, obviously, that engages in anything like that. But, um, but it is, what Desi it, Ellis, it is, for instance, said in as a, as a community pharmacist, you sell products yeah. that are, you know, used to um, diminish the side effects, red eyes, congested noses or whatever. And we do have um, plenty of people on methadone replacement 
um, therapy and, and other forms of that therapy. That happens in your pharmacy? In, 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 in South Dublin. It, yeah. We have, we have okay. plenty of that. Um, one of my pharmacies runs a, a methadone service. Okay. Um, but there is a distinct difference between the types of people, as you've just outlined, that take drugs. There's a, there's a different attitude to snorting versus injecting when you're taking the same product. Um, there's all sorts of knock-on side effects of injecting drugs, which is associated with a poorer demographic that leaves those people vulnerable to all sorts of other illnesses. And there is a hidden shame and stigma, like so many other things historically in Irish society that it's not talked about. Um, there has to be a harm reduction approach. There has to be an approach where there's not an expectation that people become miraculously cured of their addictions. There has to be consideration, as Louise mentioned, for families who were caught in these circumstances mm. and have nowhere to go. And there has to be consideration for decriminalisation so children that are caught up at a young age are able to get out of the system and they don't go into adulthood with a criminal record. I could talk about this all day because I'm dealing yeah. with these people for years, but I do very much welcome the Citizens' Assembly because in the past it has opened up those conversations for people to say, well, yeah, my family was affected like that and we just didn't talk about it. And drugs can destroy families and cocaine use in particular um, in rural Ireland and in, 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 in every socioeconomic group, can really deplete finances and leave people exposed. OK, Louise, quickly before the break, if, if this, this is a, a, wide, a wide coalition, if it's recommended by the Citizens' Assembly, for instance, to decriminalise drugs, do you think that could happen? I think this is going to be a and very... a small amount of drugs, I stress. Yeah, I think this is going to be a very divisive... Citizens Assembly. I think you know the last few we've seen on Dublin on biodiversity have been quite tame compared to what I think this will be. I think I think there will be a lot of discussions on this. I think if you see a party like the Greens, the Greens have really been pushing for this um, Citizens Assembly on drugs over the last little while. Um, I don't think this is going to be, go as smoothly as people might expect. I think you know it's been widely welcomed across the coalition, but I think it's such a divisive topic, and I think some people are actually in denial about how prevalent drug use is in Ireland, and it is in every corner of Ireland and in every socio-economic economic, every different society, it is there. So I think it will be very divisive. You see when you're out in Dublin City, a lot of drug taking. You would. A lot going on when I was out, but I'm not No, you would. Anymore. You absolutely would. There's no point lying about it. Um, not me personally, not my friends personally, but of course you, you see it. Of course you're offered drugs. You have to be the bigger person. You have to say no if, if that's not what you believe in. But it is. It's rampant. And I think, you know, you'd be in denial if you said otherwise. So I think this is going to be a really divisive topic. And I think the results of the Citizens' Assembly, we won't know for a couple of months, but I think it's going to be an important one and I don't think it's going to go, going to go away quietly. Minister Harris, would you, would you support decriminalisation of small, small amounts of drugs for people who are suffering drug addiction? I genuinely have an open mind and it's not to fudge the I know it's difficult with this. No, it's not, it's, not to, it's not to fudge the question. I mean, I've seen this from lots of different, lots of different angles. I see it from the, the criminal justice point of view in the Department of Justice. I see it from the health department I've been in. I see it from higher education. I think the benefit of a Citizens' Assembly and having a safe space to tease through all these issues, hear the expert views, but we cannot get away from the, the fact that drugs are causing harm in society, harm in community, and it's how best we deal with that. OK, we'll leave it there. We'll leave it there for now. Next, the fallout from the Wexford Hospital fire. Stay with us. Hold up. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome back. My panel is still here with me. Justice Minister Simon Harris, Sinn Féin TD Louise O'Reilly, Irish Mirror political correspondent Louise Byrne, and pharmacist Kate O'Connell. Minister Harris, we did an act of God in, um, in Wexford Hospital um, yesterday. Um, you may not know um, or can't say, but have any idea what happened yet? I truthfully don't. Um, I know that Taoiseach is going to visit the hospital tomorrow. Um, because he wants to have a chance to talk to staff, talk to management, and indeed see the damage um, himself. But I think the first thing we have to say is to pay massive tribute to all those involved. I mean, if we can just think of the level of operation that would have been involved in Wexford yesterday. So people go to work yesterday, indeed patients in hospital sick yesterday, people who maybe just given birth in hospital. All of this literally happening a busy... Two, I think. A busy, yeah, I think so. A busy hospital, and then this fire comes from nowhere. And the massive operation that... Everybody pitched in, everybody stepped up. Um, I believe it ran very well. And I really just want to pay tribute to everyone that was involved, both in the hospital and the health service, the ambulance service and transferring patients, in nurses who came in on night shifts last night, usually based in Wexford, who were transferring patients to Navan and and, and other hospitals around the country, to the civil defence, the fire brigade, of course, uh, and so, so many others, the Gardaí. So, I mean, thank God um, everybody was okay. Uh, and thank God the operation to, to keep people safe uh, seems to have been a success. What we'll all have to do now is really put our shoulder to the wheel to help the hospital uh, build back. I'm conscious that maternity services are resuming tomorrow. I think the plan is for outpatients to be back on Monday. So this is a very encouraging sign. Yeah. But we'll obviously have to help the hospital. We'll have to make sure some good comes from this as well um, in terms of some of the projects that they're looking for in terms of expanding that hospital and see if there's a chance now from this emergency um, to actually help the hospital have a brighter future. I think what the Minister might be referring to there, um, Louise O'Reilly, your, your colleague David Cullinan referred to it on radio. Mm. I, I'm sure you would agree with him that the capital budget should not be spent on building back. There are promises, I think, for 96 beds yes. and there to are, be added absolutely, there. Absolutely, yeah, and they're absolutely and you would, desperately you would needed. you want assurances of that. Oh, no, I, we, we would need to hear, and I think the people of Wexford and the surrounding areas want those assurances as well. They waited a long time, um, you know, for the extra capacity. I remember back when I was uh, representing nurses, I remember being down in Wexford and seeing people on, on mattresses um, on the floor at one point because it was so overcrowded. So absolutely, there's a capacity issue there. you know. And I want to, to, to join with the minister in paying tribute to uh, the men and women who just turned up and did a fantastic job. Civil Defence, the guards, the fire brigade, the healthcare workers transferring. My understanding is paramedics and, uh, and, and ambulance personnel came from all over the state and they just came to help to transfer patients. 
but patients have gone as far away as Drogheda now. So there's families whose patients have, whose loved ones are now far away. They need to know. So there needs to be really, really good and robust communication with the families. They need to know where their loved ones are and what is the estimated time for being able to get them back. Because I think that would put a lot of people's minds uh, at rest. You know, let's be honest, our healthcare workers are used to, to working in a crisis situation. They're used to working in chaos because of the overcrowding. That's a very regular feature of uh, our health service. They're used to, to short staff and, and they're used to having to make do and manage. But I do think what comes out of this now, it has to be something positive, not just to build back the hospital, not just to do the repairs, but also to build in that extra capacity because the hospital was already struggling. It was already overcrowded and we can't see a situation whereby all of the funds go into simply rebuilding. There has to be a recognition that expansion that was on the cards needs to be uh, fully delivered as well. But full credit to the people who were there, I can only imagine what it must have been like to have to administer care at the same time as dealing with a fire and transferring people out and getting them to safety. Absolutely fair play to them. I, I, I don't know how they cope in a normal day in our health service sometimes, but in an extraordinary day, we see extraordinary men and women stepping up and really, really, really doing us all proud. But I think now we need to see really robust communications with uh, the families. They need to know where their, their loved ones are. When are they going to be back? Realistically, nobody's going to be looking for an exact time, but to know that there is a plan to get people back and to ensure that any plans for expansion are still going to continue and that that won't be diverted by, by means of the fact that repairs are going to have to be done now. Um, huge amount of repairs, I would from uh, certainly from the footage I have seen, it's, it's going to be a big enough job. That has to be done. And I think full credit to... Uh, to the staff down there that we'll see maternity open uh, tomorrow morning and outpatients back on Monday. So that, I mean, that's absolutely a tribute to them and a testament to the, the hard work that they're going to be able to deliver that. Louise Byrne, this is a, an example of the health service performing at an optimum, I think, to, to undertake that job of getting everyone safely, not, not, a, not a single injury. Absolutely. And I think it's really a miracle that there was no one hurt. Um, I think that really does have to be commended. And when you think of the operation that went into it, I mean, there was 207 people evacuated. Um, 29 people are still on site um, in an area that's obviously safe. And even that in and of itself, that you were able to keep that one area safe is quite remarkable given the extent of the fire and the kind of the devastation and the shock that they, people must have been dealing with at the same time as trying to keep people safe. But I think, like Louise said, I think there is going to be real emphasis now on what can happen next and what support the government is going to put into their um, public expenditure minister, Pascal Donoghue. He was out this evening and doing a press conference and he was saying that he is going to liaise with Stephen Donnelly now and their main priority is making the, the place safe and getting the money into it so that it can reopen and that the people of Wexford can have that service back up and running. Kate O'Connell, can you tell us, I heard um, one of your fellow clinicians saying this morning that, that there are challenges. We don't know how long it's going to be before it's, it's up and running again, this hospital, but... Um, there, is there something, can you expand on something called the golden hour, that if someone gets, suffers a serious um, emergency incident, they need to get to another hospital from the Wexford catchment area? What, what, what other, other hospitals are, are, are available in the area that can deal with critical patients now in Wexford? That's going to be the challenge because the people of Wexford are, are being left without their service through no fault of their own. And like that, I'd like to pay tribute to the staff and the need looking after in the aftermath because I'm sure adrenaline and kept them going and I'm sure many of them are suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder on top of everything else. 
And also to note the very high risk environment it was with piped oxygen running through the place and people on life-saving equipment that had to be decommissioned with the patients and moved out. It is incredible um, that there was such a success rate. But I do think that um, in light of Sláinte Care being largely shelved due to the pandemic and in light of the clear ca capacity um, deficits in the system, there is an opportunity here to build back better in Wexford. Yeah. There's an it's very close in terms of proximity to teaching hospitals in Dublin, in terms of deployment of staff. It's an attractive place to live. And like that, out of every negative incident like this, an opportunity must be taken. Um, and, and like that, Wexford, is, the population has increased significantly in that part of the country in recent years. So the people deserve a better service and the time is right now to, to provide it. Yeah, no, can I say I agree, I agree with Kate. And just to be, to, to be clear from the government's perspective, I mean, the Taunashe was asked about this in the Dáil today and, and did make it very clear that in the context of what's happened in the hospital, Cabinet will consider how, as we build it back, we can try and meet its future needs in terms of capacity. That seems like a sensible and good use of public money if you're going to actually start building things back and using taxpayers' money, try and future-proof the hospital. Also conscious people are looking for information. Louise is right. How long will my loved one be there? When will the hospital be back? There is a helpline and that helpline is available for patients uh, and for families. And probably the other group we should just acknowledge today are the GPs and pharmacists in Wexford who really would have had to step up to the plate and did a huge amount above and beyond. Yeah. I just want to get quickly to your colleague um, he, at higher education. Let's not forget you have a very important department there as well. Niall Collins. Is that is that the end of, uh, of this after a statement? tonight to the Dáil where he outlined um, fully his um, planning application 22 years ago. Do you think it's finished now? I do and I think it's, uh, it's refreshing to see that actual government members are willing to come before the Dáil when there's questions and uh, make a statement and maybe opposition parties might want to do the same in relation to some queries we have regarding their electoral returns and that opportunity still stands and is still there for them. Name the time, name the day, we'll be there next week whenever they want. Uh, but yes, I think Minister Collins um, who I work with very closely, uh, took the opportunity today to go before the Dáil uh, to make a personal statement and to outline the situation. And I think he made it clear in that statement um, that clearly he was um, eligible for planning uh, in that part of the county at that time. And I think it was useful and important that he did it. And uh, I hope that draws a line under the matter. Louise O'Reilly, are you satisfied with the minister's statement to the Dáil tonight? Well, I think it's. I was. I was actually in the Dáil as it goes um, when he made the statement. Yeah. But I, I think it's. It's welcome that he has. That he has made the statement. The thing I don't understand, and I don't think he would need to come in and make another statement necessarily to clarify it. But there seems to be a discrepancy in relation to the address that uh, that he used or the, the the claim on the plan and application yeah. that he was living uh, in his parents' house. But as he said in the Dáil this evening, he wasn't living in his parents' house. That's something he could clear up. Like he doesn't need to come into the Dáil to do that. He could do that this evening. He could, uh, you know, he could do that tomorrow quite easily, actually. But that, I think, is, you know, it's very welcome that he had come in and given the statement. And, you know, I mean, I, as I say, I was there. But I do think there's that, there's just that small thing that wasn't, uh, that wasn't addressed as part of it. And perhaps he, you know, he'll have the opportunity to clear that up. I don't necessarily think that means it needs a dull statement, but I think he can take uh, an opportunity maybe in the coming days to, to just clarify exactly what, why, the, why that was, you know, there was one address on the plan and application, which wasn't clearly the address that, that, he, was, uh, that he was living at. And he did, that's the only thing I think that he didn't address today. Louise Burns, have finished? I think it is. And I think, you know, I think Minister Collins, he took the time to go and get the facts and get his planning permission. And I think 
to be honest, barring anything else, any other big revelation coming out, I do think he is out the gap. I think what was really interesting in that statement this evening is how careful he was, how considered he was, how close to the script that he stayed. It was almost as if he was reading it out word by word, which was an interesting thing. I think he probably did the right thing taking the time. You know, we had Pascal Donoghue the other month coming back and forth, so I think it was quite wise to go away, get the documents, and then come back in and do it once. We'll leave it there. After the break, we'll take a look at some of the other big news stories of the week. Stay right there. Welcome back. My panel is still here with me. Justice Minister Simon Harris, Sinn Féin TD Louise O'Reilly, Irish Mirror political correspondent Louise Byrne and pharmacist Kate O'Connell. We'll try and look back now at some of the other big stories of the week. Um, the protocol, um, it hasn't gone away, you know, Louise O'Reilly. I heard a... Um, the editor of the newsletter, Belfast Newsletter, saying on the radio during the week that he, he felt um, that unionists had a, an opposition to, and this was his editorial opinion, to going back into a, um, an assembly that was led by, by your colleague, Michelle O'Neill. Is that, is that something that you believe is, is actually the case? Well, whether it, is, okay, whether it is or it isn't, uh, Michelle O'Neill is the first minister designate because of a democratic election that was held. So you, we can all have an opinion. I certainly have an opinion about the head of government on this part of the island, but you have to respect democracy. I think it, you know, people really need to focus their minds now on getting back to work in the North, on getting the institutions back up and running, on getting the executive up and running. Michelle O'Neill has done Trojan work. She stands ready to uh, to lead the executive as a first minister for all. She has stretched herself. She has reached out. We, you know, there's been a lot of work done, even though the executive is not up and running, but really people in the North want to see their politicians back at work. They want to see their politicians working hard to address issues such as the cost of living crisis from which they are not immune. And they also want to see the benefits that will come from being able to trade with Britain and also uh, with the European Union. They want to see maximisation of those benefits. So they want to see job creation. They want to see pay increases. They want to see the cost of living addressed and they want to see their politicians back up and running and uh, the executive back uh, to work. And that's what Michelle O'Neill is trying to do. So, you know, I don't think that people should get hung up on who the person is. The fact is that an election was held Michelle O'Neill is the first minister designate. She stands ready to lead the executive as the first minister for all. And that is what we need to get on and do. And I'm telling you, if you go to the North, as I do, and you talk to people, that is what they want. They don't want any more, uh, any, any more of this. I'm not going to say messing because, you know, pe people had concerns, but they've been addressed now. They want to see the executive formed and they want to see their politicians working hard for them because that is what they were elected to do. Is it going to happen, Minister Harris? Are we Look, going to see a, a, an assembly back up and running by the time the anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement comes rolling around next month? I certainly hope so. And the Irish government obviously wants to see the institutions back up and running as, as, as quickly as possible. This has been a very significant week. Um, it's been a week in which uh, an important agreement has been reached uh, between the European Union and the UK. Um, obviously, people will want to take time to consider the text, consider the legal documents. I think that's that, that's okay. That's right and proper that people are given that space. But ultimately, now we we have an agreement. We have an agreement that goes 
such a long way to trying to address people's concerns. And I think, to use Louise's phrase, stretched, I think both Europe and, and the UK, I think, stretched themselves to try and find solutions. I think great credit goes to all, goes to all involved. And we do need to see the institutions back up and running. It's so important um, for the island of Ireland. Um, it's also so important for relations between um, Ireland and the UK. And look, I hope this week will begin to mark uh, a period of a resumption of those normal relations that perhaps we'd gotten used to in the years since the Good Friday Agreement, good relations between Ireland and our nearest neighbours and good relations between the EU and the UK. And this agreement offers that prospect and I do hope the institutions can be back up and running as quickly as possible. Gail O'Connell, could we see Sinn Féin and government uh, on, uh, on the, both sides of the border, I know it's, there's a better way of saying it, uh, north and south, uh, in the near future, do you think? As a former Fine Gael TD, I ask you to put your hat on. You're still and a Fine Gael it's, it's, politician. It's, it's, it's a democracy. It's the will of the people. And well, could it happen soon? Of course it could happen. Anything could happen. And we've seen major surprises in elections in Ireland in the past. Um, that said, with the increase in population and the seat numbers um, to increase, um, it's going to be hard to get to majority um, from where Sinn Féin are now. And I think the conversation, as it has in recent days, appears to have moved to, well, with who else um, could they possibly govern? Um, in terms of the protocol, I think, um, or, the, or, the, or the agreement that's on the table, um, I think language is very important. Um, I think it's very important that we all kind of hold back. And I think most, if not all, Irish politicians have had the capacity to do that in recent weeks. But for the people of Northern Ireland, and I have connections in the North and visited on occasion, you know, they're looking for a pathway forward. They're actually past. I met someone on holidays recently and I brought it up. And she literally went, I thought, middle-aged person. I thought, oh, they love to talk about this shit. We've had enough. We just want to move on. And I think that's reflective of the tone up there. Lives have been put on hold, although it was a democratic vote of the UK. Many people in the North don't feel that it was their decision. However, politics is all about finding solutions. A solution is here now solution for the people of Northern Ireland and hopefully that it will improve relations. And Northern Ireland does need investment. Northern Ireland, the people of Northern Ireland have been left behind for many, many years. So it's very important that this is used as an opportunity to, um, you know, I suppose, repay some of the abject misery that they have suffered in recent decades. Simon Harris, because I kind of garbled that question um, and I, I, I'm going to ask you, <laughs> why... Why did Leo Varadkar say he'd resign as a member of Fine Gael if, if Fine Gael went into coalition with Sinn Féin? You know, if Sinn Féin have a mandate in this country, you could be leader of um, Fine Gael in the, in the future. Um, I think you're garbling this question. Surely you are the man to, 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 to move down that road to Damascus to coalition with Sinn Féin, a no. party that has a significant mandate already and sure to have a bigger one. So, so it's, it's absolutely a statement of fact that everybody elected to Dáil including Sinn Féin TDs, have a mandate. There, there's no question in relation to that, but so too do Fine Gael TDs. Um, when Fine Gael go before the election and they seek a mandate, uh, we, we will be very clear with people what we will do after the election and what we will not do after the election. And it'll be up to every party uh, to say that clearly. We have a position in our party. It is crystal clear. It is shared by every member of the Fine Gael Parliamentary Party uh, that we won't enter government with Sinn Féin. And this is, not a, this is not that we won't enter government with Sinn Féin 
for any reason other than we believe our policies aren't compatible. And I actually think going to the election and having a choice, and there will be a real choice at the next election, we'll be back here and we can debate that another day, there will be a real choice and different policies on offer to the Irish people. I think it's important, it might even be refreshing in democracy that parties actually go to the electorate and say, if you vote for our policy, we'll go into government. But actually, if you prefer their policies, we're not going in with them. And, and that's, that's how democracy works. Other parties, I think, will have to, in time, be as clear uh, on who they may go into government with after the election. But for my party, we're, we're crystal clear on it. I think it's really interesting that that is how Fine Gael is. It, it looks how that is how they're trying to distinguish themselves from Fianna Fáil because we hear time and time again from Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil that they want to distinguish themselves from each other in this coalition. And we've heard Micheál Martin time and time again saying he's not going to rule in or rule out going in with Fianna Fáil, but it will all be about policy. And, you know, if you read between the lines, that would suggest that perhaps he won't go in with Fianna Fáil but he's, or with Sinn Féin, but he's not saying it out straight. So I find it really remarkable how strong Fine Gael come out on it and it really does seem like it's a tactic to distinguish themselves within the coalition. I'll ask you, know you really stand. quickly. Yeah. Yeah. Who's going to go into coalition a, next, next time? They're going to have tactic. 60 seats. It's a bit of a tactic on uh, on the part of the, the government to try and, and create this little bit of a, of, of a smoke and mirrors kind of thing. I mean, the fact is, when you talk about policy, the fact is that Fine Gael, after 12 years in government, have brought us to almost 12,000 people uh, who are forced to live in emergency accommodation. We're in the middle of a housing crisis that has been called in no, caused in no small part by government policy. So when yes. the election is called, when the election is called, Sinn Féin will fight that election on the basis of our policies. We will go to the people and on the basis of our mandate, we will talk to everybody because that's what grown-ups do. That's right, but you don't need to talk to us after okay, the election because we don't want to go into government with you. And at least th this is called being honest, okay, with, we've being, honest, being honest with the electorate. Uh, I think it's important you tell people before an election what you'll do in the election and what you'll do after the election. And our position is very clear. We'll offer an alternative vision and hopefully you'll do your electoral returns, not you personally, but Sinn Féin correctly after the election because it'll be the first one, I think, in four that you've managed to, back to pull it off. And show. you can always take those statements in the doll next week and, and ask and, a few questions the election is called, we will go to the people and we will put our policies in front of them. And on the basis of that, as, as I've said, as we. we are adults and we will talk to everybody. Kate O'Connell, what did we get wrong in the in the pandemic? We, we might have a public inquiry into how we how we conducted ourselves. It's easy to say we got lots wrong and I'm sure I got plenty of things wrong and I'm sure Simon was Minister for Head at the time and I'm sure I think you might have been Sinn Féin Head spokesperson perhaps at the time. But um, we were operating in a in a vacuum. We, I mean, as as a, a pharmacist, I had to look at it from the knowns about a virus, just all viruses. And um, there was a certain amount of knowledge on Corona, but there wasn't much any knowledge in terms of it um, infiltrating the human population. We had to act and be cautious when it was the health of our own population, but the health of the world at risk. And we also knew, I suppose, that if we held back and we tried to protect the population. It wasn't forever that solutions would be found within the scientific well, we've, community, we've had and they were found. But there are key, key things that I see as completely wrong. I mean, children coming out of school, and obviously I'm biased on this one, yeah. <laughs> three children at home attempting to homeschool them, limited to the, the map the of Ireland and, and a little bit of chemistry. But there was huge impacts on the development, the development of children, that are still being caught up and some of them will never catch up. And um, there was huge impact. And that last lockdown, uh, when we, a lot of our population were, were vaccinated, was that a good idea? Was that well, wise? again, there was concerns and I mean, it, it all, you know, mashes into a whole three years of mayhem. 
But at times, these, these variants of concern were emerging, mm. emerging and there were concerns that they would evade the vaccine. Yeah, so in true. some ways, theoretically, we were considering we back at square one. But like that, what's crucial here is that we learn again, like actually, and, and, and to give credit to Simon, there was work done on mandatory vaccination in advance of the pandemic because it actually came out with the HPV conversation. Mm. So there was a bit of good work done in the previous doll just by accident, really. Um, but in terms of how we deal with um, something like this, again, it is crucial that we never do this to a population. Like the idea and the cruelty of the funeral element and the, the, the deaths of older people and the abandonment. I mean, stories of people singing in windows of nursing homes. I was working in pharmacy. It was heartbreaking what we saw. And we're all kind of affected by it. But the main thing is, is that we learn from this and it's applied in the future um, to a positive for the population. Simon Harris, when's the public inquiry? Taoiseach has said he hopes to get it set up uh, by the middle of this year. It's okay. right and proper that we have one. That's it from us. Our programme is available on podcast on all major platforms. And you can also now find us on Instagram and TikTok. Tonight, BMTV. From us all here in the late team, good night and take care. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.